if you have not been with us at all until this morning, we are working our way verse by verse throughout the Gospel of Mark. And I have been emphasizing to you, those of you who have been here, that the real issue of life is not what is on the outside of man, but what is on the inside. Indeed, even Jesus himself had said earlier, as Mark recorded it in Mark chapter 7, these words, There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are which defile the man. Whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it not, does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. In other words, Jesus is saying that the real issue with man is all the stuff that is going on on the inside of him. Not simply what you see on the outside. And true to form, the religious leaders of the Jews of, G of Jesus' day are evil and wicked on the inside. But it just simply wasn't apparent that they were when you looked at the outside. What you see on the outside sometimes looks very good, very religious, very spiritual. But what you have on the inside is very sinful, very wicked, very evil. You say, well, how do you know what is on the inside of the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders? How do you really know what's going on on the inside of these men? Well, the answer, of course, is that we can't know what's on the inside apart from divine revelation, apart from what God Himself says about these men. And what does divine revelation tell us about these men and their hatred of Jesus? Well, for instance, look back just a few verses at Mark chapter 11, verse 18. Mark 11, 18. Our text for this morning will be Mark 11, verses 27 to 33. But if you look back just a few brief verses... To verse 18, here's what the Bible tells us about them. The chief priests and the scribes heard this. That is, heard Jesus and His comments when He cleansed the temple. And they began seeking how to destroy Him. For they were afraid of Him. For the whole crowd was astonished at His teaching. And even all the way back to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, Mark records these words, The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. 
I mean, all the way back in the earliest stages of the Gospel of Mark, as he records the events in the life of Jesus, as soon as Jesus comes on the scene publicly, the religious leaders of the day are intent on destroying him, putting him out of commission, pushing him out of the way. When we work our way through the, further through the Gospel of Mark, we'll see in Mark 12, 12, these words, And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. You see, what all of these passages show us is that the evil, wicked hearts of these men is what is perpetrating these thoughts these lies, this wickedness, but it's all on the inside. And unless God were to show us like He has here, we wouldn't know a lot of the times what's in the heart of a man. Oh, you might be able to see sometimes when someone on the outside commits various acts, deeds, wickedness, and you would be able to conclude and most of the time we would probably be accurate. That appears to me to be a wicked man or a wicked woman based upon what they're doing. But in the deep recesses of the heart are only known by God Himself what is the intent of man's heart. Now we know that the Bible says about the unregenerate that the only intent of their heart is evil continually. That's true. But sometimes we're able to dress it up rather nicely, aren't we? We're able to look at our society and look at some major philanthropist or someone who is involved in government or in society in some way and they say, all I want to do is better society and maybe they're going to give large sums of money or maybe they work with UNICEF or with the United Way or some organization like that. And maybe what looks good on the outside really isn't good. Or maybe the good they assume they're doing is being done because they want to merit eternal life. They don't understand that salvation is by grace through faith, plus or minus no works of any kind. No good works. No amount of good works are ever going to allow anyone to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It is only by the good work that Jesus Christ did on the cross that really even allows anybody to refer to themselves or to have God refer to them as good. There are many people, and these religious leaders are but a prime example of those who looked good on the outside. In fact, people can look so good, they can have such a good-looking outside that they could be seen and perceived as religious, spiritual, doing all kinds of good work trying all they can to serve God and to look at all of the fine things that could be done and that they're attempting to accomplish. These religious leaders on the outside, they appeared in the temple to be very spiritual, ministering to the people, serving those who would come to the temple area. But as soon as Jesus would come to the temple, what was really on the inside started to come out. And when Jesus would walk in, just, just by the mere presence of Christ, they would immediately begin to think about how they might conspire to kill Him. 
And why? Well, several of these texts tell us why. Because it says they feared the people. And they feared that whatever religious enterprise they were involved with would be taken out from underneath them because Jesus was overturning the very religious functions of the day. I mean, he came right through that door, and when he saw the money changers, and when he saw what the temple had turned out to be, he was nauseated. And he started overturning the tables, physically pushing people out of the temple, trying to make sure that the temple stood for what it was supposed to stand for, a place and a house of prayer for all the nations, instead of what they had turned it into, and that was a robber's den, a den of thieves. And there no doubt were some people in that time who had such a, a great respect and awe and reverence for the person of Christ, maybe even if they didn't know He was the Messiah Himself. But they certainly had some level of attachment because the crowds were always around the person of Jesus, always following Him. And no doubt they were following Him right in on the temple area as well. And no doubt they may have even been applauding when he overturned the money changers' tables. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the elders of the people, they were fearful because they were assuming that their gig was just about up. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? What are we going to say and what are we going to do to ensure that we continue to ply our trade in this place. Well, the one thing we know we have to do is to somehow trap this Jesus, this rabbi, this master teacher. We have to somehow pit him against God. We have to pit him somehow against the law of God. We have to do something because the people perceive this Jesus as someone special. And when he comes in and does what he just did in the temple, then we have big trouble on our hands. Notice what they say here in the text for our morning in chapter 11, verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem, that is, Jesus and his disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, notice that, all he's doing is just walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We might say in our culture that was a full facial. Right into the face of the religious leaders, you're going to ask me this question, I'm going to turn around and ask you a question. If you answer mine, I'll answer yours. 
frankly, beloved, the outline of this passage is so simple. In verses 27 and 28, we have the questioning by the religious leaders. They ask their question. In verses 29 and 30, you have Jesus asking His question, the questioning of Jesus Himself. And then in verses 31 to the first part of 33, you have the answer which is given by the religious leaders. And then the last part of verse 33, you have the answer given by Jesus. Question, question, answer, answer. Very simple. What is the question by the religious leaders? Verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now what is particularly significant about Jesus coming into Jerusalem? Why would Mark include that? Well, you remember, as I have been saying to you, that this is actually the very Passion Week of Christ. This is the beginning of the week of his very death. And Mark wants us to know that he, at the end of each of the first two days now, Sunday and Monday, he's been going into Jerusalem, the first through his triumphal entry, on the back of a donkey and with the palm branches down, with the crowd saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And Tuesday, with what immediately preceded what we are discussing today, he's cleansing the temple and he's talking to his own disciples about faith and about trusting God and about prayer. And apparently after each of these sojournings into Jerusalem, he goes back to the house in which they were staying in either Bethany or Bethpage, just outside of Jerusalem proper. And so they come again to Jerusalem. And as Jesus was walking into the temple, immediately the text says, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now with what I told you about the motives and the heart of the religious leaders, we already know what they're all about. We already know what their motives are. They're trying to seize him first in a lie, in an inconsistency, and something that will be against the very law as they themselves interpret it. And now, because we know the motives, all we're trying to determine from the text is when they'll seize him, not if. They've already determined that in their hearts. Now it's just a matter of the timing as to when they'll seize and kill Jesus. And you see, these religious leaders believed it was their right. I mean, we might ask the question, what's going on here? I mean, why do they think they have the right to come in and question the person of Jesus. Well, remember, these religious leaders, they believe that they have the sovereign right to care under God's authority the temple area. The chief priests, first of all, were made up of former high priests. And they now had some level of permanent duty within the area of worship there at the temple. And so, why do they think they have the right to do this? Because they believe, and to some degree they're accurate, they're in charge of the worship in the temple. They're the ones who are conducting the services. They're the ones who are leading in the area of worship. They're the ones who say, this is what we do next, this is what we do next, this is how we do it, this is our tradition. And at least we have to give them some benefit by saying, at least, at the very least, they're trying to have some modicum of effort and organization to the temple arrangement as no doubt the Old Testament would have prescribed. 
And so you have the chief priests. But then it also says, secondly, that you have the scribes. And who were they? Well, if you understand by the very nature of that term, the scribes were the legal experts on the law. They were official interpreters of the law of God. They were the ones who say, well, we believe the law means this, not just what it says, but what it means by what it says. And so they have a vested interest as well. If Jesus can be caught doing something against the law of God, who will be right there to tell them that? The scribes. Aha! He's against Moses. He said something against our God, and that's why the scribes were there. And then thirdly, it says the elders. Who are they? Well, the elders were laymen who came from the wealthy aristocracy, the upper echelon of society. And they were the ones who, in essence, were the leaders of the lay congregation. The others were the paid staff. These were the laymen, and they all gathered together. And, of course, sometimes, as you know, as you read the gospel account, sometimes the Sadducees and the Herodians and some of these who were all intent on tripping up Jesus didn't even like each other. But one thing they were completely unified in was that they were all against Jesus. And remember, these are the very ones, according to Jesus' own teaching in Mark 8, 31, who are going to reject his ministry. He even told his own disciples this would happen. He said, Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus knows this. He knows exactly what's going to happen. This is what is truly in their hearts. Jesus knows what's in their hearts and he knows that this is going to come. And no matter what these people look like on the outside, no matter what they claim, their intent is not to lose control of the temple. See, that's the key. That's why they're responding the way they are. That's why when Jesus comes into the temple and he overturns the carts and he tells them they can't do this money exchanging in the temple, you can't take an animal and sell it to someone so that then someone can take the animal and offer it to God. You can't have this activity in the temple. And when Jesus comes in and does that kind of thing and he messes up the whole productivity of the place, this is going against the temple. And we are the purveyors of the temple. We're the protectors of the temple. He can't do this. What is he doing? And if we can trap him, we can force him to be somehow pitted against the people. And even though they're very leery against the crowd, or for the crowd against Jesus, and their attachment and fascination with him, they still want to work toward destroying him. If we could figure out a way to have the people think we're doing a good thing and yet move Jesus out of the way, if we can somehow do those two things at the same time, then we're in like Flint. We're going to be able to do this deal. And the cleansing of the temple was very, very disturbing. You can imagine how it would be to have someone come in and physically rearrange the place and tell everybody else, you need to leave because you're making this place a robber's den. No, they figured that it was high time to begin pouncing on Christ. They immediately began to challenge him as to his credentials. Look at verse 28. They began saying to him. 
In other words, they had a continual dialogue going. They continued to say to him, or they began saying it and continued saying it, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? I mean, they were repeatedly questioning the person of Christ all throughout his ministry. They even questioned his teaching. All the way back in John chapter 2, verse 18, they were questioning even his teaching ministry. Not just what he did and not just the miracles that he performed, but his very teaching. And even though they couldn't deny that the miraculous was happening, if they couldn't deny the reality that the miraculous was itself happening before their very eyes, what would they say about it? Well, he does what he does in the miraculous by the prince of demons. He does it by the hand of Satan himself. They actually accused him of that. You remember that back in Mark chapter 3? I mean, this is incredible. I mean, in Mark chapter 2, there's a lame man who you remember his friends lowered down through the roof after digging their way through the roof and they lowered him down on this pallet and it was right in front of Jesus and it said that the scribes and Pharisees were just in the house some distance away listening to this teaching, ready to seize him, ready to pounce on him if they could. And this man is being lowered by his very faithful friends and lowered right and down in the middle of it and it caused all kinds of commotion. And Jesus looked at the man and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now that, my friends, is a very provocative statement for a man to make, is it not? And here these religious leaders immediately say, what? I like saying that. What? What are you saying? Your sins are forgiven? No one can say that except God alone. And Jesus, knowing that it's true that if someone says your sins are forgiven, how do I know that? I mean, if I just walked up to someone and said, brother, your sins are forgiven. How does he know that? How does someone standing around know that? How do we know for sure that their sins are forgiven? Well, we don't know that on a human level. How do we know a, a divine transaction has occurred? Somebody's sins are actually forgiven? I say that to someone and it's forgiven? How? Jesus said this, I want you to know by what authority I'm telling this man his sins are forgiven. Rise, take up your pallet and walk. Now, beloved, I could tell you your sins are forgiven, but I can't tell you that. No way. And what did the man do? In proof of the deity of Jesus Christ, in proof that he was God Almighty, in proof that he had the authority to raise a man up, including the forgiveness of that lame man's sins, that man arose. Incredible. Now, what should have occurred? I mean, the religious leader should have said, I think Messiah has come. I think he's here. Instead, they continue to cower and wait. And they're waiting all the way through even to Mark 11. And when he comes in the temple and he's cleansed the temple and they're saying this might be our time and we have a few questions we want to ask you. By what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do these things. We want to know by what authority or whom gave you this authority. Who did it? Now there's one little tidbit here I want you to know. In one sense, totally off the subject, but I think is interesting. Do you know how Jesus interacts with people like this? When he interacts with people like this, whose hearts are cold and wicked and evil, he interacts with them in a completely different way. 
But when someone comes to him who is broken, who is contrite, who is recognizing their sinfulness, like the, the woman at the well or someone else who's in great need, the woman caught in adultery, how does Jesus interact with that person? Kind, loving, compassionate. Sometimes I think people only assume that God deals with people in one way. In fact, just the other night I was watching uh, Larry King Live and Dr. Al Mohler was on there, president of Southern Seminary. He's a great brother, great friend in the Lord. And he responded to this issue of homosexuality. And there were other people, other, uh, there were homosexuals on the program. They were all talking. There was this one lady who was an author of some book. And she was saying, look, this Reverend Moeller guy over here, he doesn't understand that all he's talking about is the God of judgment. That's all he knows about. And you Christians, if, if you understood things better, you would understand that God is not a God of judgment at all. He's a God of love and a God of love only. And of course, that's the time when you want to put your foot through the television. <laughs> and I thought Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary, had a great response. He said, the Bible that I read and the Bible that is read by Christians does not choose to make a God of our own invention. Our God is a God of both love and justice. And, he, and, and there was a Jewish man who has a very popular radio program, Dennis Prager. You might have heard of him. He's a Jewish fellow. And he even piped up and said, Boy, I'm glad that God is a God of judgment sometimes or Adolf Hitler would be in heaven. And I thought, that's a good point. When Jesus interacts with those who need him desperately, he will not stamp out the smoldering wick. Someone's down, if someone's acknowledging their sin, he doesn't come and stomp all over them. He gives them grace and mercy. But when someone comes to him and they're hard-hearted and they're haughty and they're only wanting to trap him, he comes to him in a different way. He speaks of their true condition. Or like in this text, maybe he doesn't even answer them at all. But how does Jesus answer him? Look at verse 29. What does he say to these guys? And he said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. I love that. I just love that. I mean, it's almost like you're saying when you read this text, Yes, Jesus, go! Yeah, you don't have to tell them anything. I'll pose a question for you. Well, he decides to ask them a question himself. And it's beautiful. Great logic. What about John the baptizer, he says? If you really thought he was from God, i.e. that he was from heaven, then why didn't you repent and believe his message? You see, Jesus knew that these temple practices that they were involved in, these cultic temple practices, were being upset by the very practices of John the Baptist. Why? Because they weren't going to the temple to repent of their sins. They were going out to the Jordan River to repent and to be baptized. And that was not a money-making proposition for them. The repentance that he was preaching was a repentance that was down there, not at the temple. He's messing us up again. It's John the Baptist. But they also knew that John the Baptist had a very clear message and that he came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and there were converts galore. There were people recognizing their sin. 
They were looking at John the Baptist's life and they were realizing that he was a holy man sent from God and they realized these things and they were coming to put their faith in Messiah. And the people, many of them, were following that message and they were leaving, in, in essence, that, that kind of temple practice that was being done by the religious leaders. They didn't like that, but they feared the people as well. I mean, forgiveness was free. Why did I have to go to the temple and do all of this? You see, there was a transition now away from all of the sacrifices and all of those things, and John the Baptist is the, the one coming to bring the Messiah to the people. It was a coming of age. There was soon to be no sacrifices needed whatsoever because the Messiah was going to die on a cross as the eternal and everlasting sacrifice. So he says, look, if, if you look at John the Baptist and his ministry and you don't believe it was from heaven, then you better tell the people that because they believe it was. Yeah, just go out and start telling the people that John the Baptist wasn't from God. Start telling all of the people that he was never a prophet. In fact, if he claimed to be a prophet of God, tell them that he wasn't. That means that you'll be telling them that he was a sham prophet and that you better likely tell them that he must have been from Satan himself, not of God. Go ahead, tell the people. But if you really did believe, as did the people, that he was from God, that he was sent from heaven, then let me ask you this. Why didn't you believe his message? Why didn't you repent of your sins? He, he preached a baptism of repentance. Why didn't you repent? Why didn't you turn from your sins? You remember what John the Baptist himself said to them right then when they came to be baptized? What did he say? Do you remember? Why are you coming, you brood of vipers? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just tell me. Don't just tell me that there's something on the outside. Tell me what's really going on on the inside. This is a conundrum for them. How do they respond? What do they say? <laughs> and I love this. Jesus says, end of verse 30, answer me. Apparently it was taking a little bit of time. Answer me. Tell me. I need an answer. And I'm sure if they had tried to come up with a few, he would say, is that your final answer? I want you to tell me right now. And here's their answer. Look at verse 30. Uh, verse 31. They began reasoning, uh, reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? If we say that, then we're in a, we're in a fix because we're afraid of the people because they consider John to have been a real prophet. What do we say? What do we do? So instead of answering him, as he wanted and as they should, verse 33, answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. Is that true? Well, it could be. It could be that they honestly didn't know. Well, now, now maybe he was a prophet. A and if he was a prophet, as the people perceive, then we should have repented. But no, no, that couldn't be right. Because the temple is the place where God dwells. It's the temple where repentance occurs. No, it, it, it can't go against that. And so we must believe that John the Baptist was not a prophet. He was just one of those wild guys. I mean, he, 
He, he drank that honey and he ate those locusts. I mean, he was a weird guy to begin with. And surely he couldn't be the prophet of God. Surely he couldn't be the forerunner of Messiah himself. Just look at him. We, we, we can't believe that. We don't know how to respond. Or maybe, maybe it goes deeper than that. Maybe because of their wickedness and their sinfulness and their debauchery of spirit, their spiritual bankruptcy, maybe, maybe they're so wicked. They're unwilling to respond to an honest question from the Lord himself. Maybe it's because they don't want to. Does that ring any bells with our society? People have been given the gospel. People have been told to repent of their sins. People have been told that they can live both an abundant life here and an eternal life in heaven with God forever and ever. And they've been told that this is the way and they've been confronted in their sin with the lordship of Jesus Christ Jesus himself said, you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do the things I say. And the answer of many, many people is this. I don't care. Maybe it's not an I don't know, but it's an I don't care. And maybe at the heart of this religiosity, this piosity of these leaders, you're messing up our business you're taking away my livelihood. This is my profession. And if I answer you now, I'm in for it. I don't like you. And I'm not going to answer your questions. And maybe that's why Jesus says, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If your wicked hearts are so egregiously full of venom and hatred toward me, I'm not going to give you the right answer to that question. The right answer to that question, as we know, and Jesus said later was, I do what I do by the authority of God himself. In the garden, when they come, Jesus says, could I not call down legions of angels? That tells me by what authority he does those things. That tells me where he's come from. But here he chooses not to, and I think he chooses not to because he knows their hearts are so wicked they wouldn't believe, they wouldn't repent, they wouldn't respond even if he told them. And that's why he starts telling parables about them. That's why he says in Matthew 23, Woe, 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 woe to these scribes and Pharisees. Blind leading the blind. Whited sepulchers. Tombstones. And his authority becomes greater and greater and greater, at least as he articulates it, because in time, he's going to say, you are in your sins forever. Now, what does this mean for us? I preach now for about 35 minutes, 40 minutes. What does this mean for us? There could be some of you who say, well, that is, a, that is a really incredible account of a portion of the life of our Lord. So what? What does it mean? How does it relate to me in the pew, sitting where I'm sitting? What does it relate to me on Monday? How do I live my life? What does this mean for me? Let me ask you. Have you submitted your life to the authority of Jesus Christ? 
Have you submitted your life to Christ? It may be that Jesus asks them a question for which they dare not answer. It's entirely another for you to be asked the same question and you dare not answer. You must answer. And if you choose to refuse to answer like they did, that's an answer in and of itself. Because no answer to affirm is an answer to deny. Jesus Christ is wanting, desiring, yea, commanding our obedience. And he says, you must submit to me as Lord and Savior. Do we do that? Is that our heart? Is that what we're all about? Do we say as professing Christians, I submit my life, my daily chores, my activities, my heart, my thoughts to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Do you? Or do you evade the authority of Christ? That's what they were doing. They were evading the authority of Christ. They didn't want the implications of that. And there are many who say today, I don't want the implications of that. Why? Because it's, it means that I'm going to have to give up my sin. It means that I'm going to have to respond to someone over me, and I will not have someone over me. I won't have it. I'm the captain of my own destiny. I will do what I want. No one will tell me what to do. And it could very well be that Jesus says to that kind of person, I may not tell you that authority, at least in the real issues of your life right now, but one day, maybe in this life or maybe in the next, you will know by what authority we are to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. David Garland helps us here when he says this. How do we take that context and bridge it with ours? He says, to bridge the context, therefore, our need to identify and reflect on parallel phenomenon in our own religious and political life. That's what we need. What does he mean? He says, this text should cause us to re-examine the institutions which we regard as sacrosanct. Is it all show, all leaves and no fruit? Are the leaders corrupt, intent on furthering their own careers and reputations while feathering their own nests? Does self-interest and popular opinion reign supreme? Does it offer people a false security? Does it allow people to get away with ritual repentance that never affects the heart and how they live? Has it become a source of pride? Is it something that separates us from others and bestows special status on only an elite? We also have our sacred places, groups, organizations, and ways of doing things. The entire system can become rotten to the core, but the veneer of piety and an aura of holiness make it seem inviolable. If one takes on religious or political corruption, it has its costs. Those invested in such institutions do not sit idly by when someone challenges their hold on power. It cost Jesus his life. Are you willing for that to happen to you? Stand up against the crowd, against the wave. Stand up for what you believe because you're submitting to the Lordship of Christ and say, yes, if it even costs me my life, so be it. Or is there a thin veneer of spirituality? But what is really in the heart is a refusal to submit to the very Lordship of Christ we say we profess. It's a great text. Let's apply it to our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do want to take these texts and we don't want these texts to become nothing more than a nice sermon. Nothing more than an interesting story out of the life of Christ.
but we must ask as he was asking them. Are you questioning my authority? We thank you, Father, that this text teaches us unmistakably the unquestioned authority of Jesus. And we want in our own lives to submit to that. I pray for everyone here that they would respond to the authority of Christ, to the matchless sovereignty of Christ, and that we would not either not answer or with our true, tangible, real lives, regardless of what's on the outside, refuse to submit to His Lordship. I pray for everyone here that they would respond to this message. I pray for someone who might be saying, I, I've never submitted my life to Christ. I, I've never bowed to His Lordship. I, I want that. I need that. I must have that. I pray that you would respond. In a moment, you'll be told how to respond. I pray that you'll be able, by God's own initiative, to go to our prayer room, to talk with someone who brought you, and to repent of your sins, and to acknowledge Jesus Christ and His authority. Lord, we don't cower away from your authority. We embrace it because we know that ultimately it's the best authority for us. And even though it may be times where we don't understand your authority, where we can question what is our future in light of that authority, we know that you tell us what is best and you show us what is best. And I pray that you would do so by your mercy and grace. For we pray in the name, the matchless name of Christ. In his name, amen.